Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're looking at verses 10 through 12 this morning. You can find it on page 979 in the Bibles that are provided in the chairs. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Now, right up, I, I have to confess to you guys that, that I was feeling a bit relieved to be able to come to this passage of Scripture, to actually make it to the armor of God. Because I, I don't know about you, but the last two chapters have been pretty intense. I mean, have they not? They've really worked us over in, in many ways. I mean, the first part of chapter four was great. You know, all that talk about the unity of the church and growing together towards maturity in Christ and just God's design, God's vision, God's purpose for the church. I mean, I love that stuff. That's in my wheelhouse. I mean, if you know me, I love the church. I'm passionate about the church. I talk about the church. So that was all great. But basically, from chapter four, verse 17 on, up until now, it just seems like week after week, After a week, the Lord has been working us over. I mean, especially that whole Christian household section. Anybody kind of go through that unscathed? No? Okay, I'm glad, right? I mean, wow. I mean, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. Christ love the church. And some intense stuff. I mean, the Lord was right up in our faces. The Lord was in our homes. He was in our workplaces. He was in our bedrooms. And it was convicting. And I, I remember thinking to myself as I was preparing along the way, it's like, Lord, I, I, am, I am so looking forward to getting to the armor of God passage. Lord, please just take the microscope off of me. Please. This is, this is crazy. I mean, it was, it was good though, right? I mean, the Lord was faithful to us to reveal areas of sin and selfishness that reside in our hearts. The Lord was so gracious to remind us of how the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to every single area of our lives. But let's face it, I mean, it was so good and so necessary, but it was humbling and convicting. And I was just looking forward to something lighter, something easier, something that didn't hit me so close to home, something like I don't know, spiritual warfare. I mean, what was I thinking? It made no sense. But that does open a window into my thought process and what I was functionally believing about spiritual warfare. That it was light. That it is inconsequential. That it doesn't hit so close to home. Well, friends, I have to confess right up front that this is the wrong way to think about spiritual warfare. That is incorrect thoughts. This is not what we want to have. I mean, we, we have, I have to confess, I mean, this, this spiritual war is raging all around me, and I was just kind of hoping, hoping that it was just to live in oblivion to it, right? And I'm, I'm guessing that I'm not the only one that feels that way. I'm guessing I'm not the only one that thinks wrongly about spiritual warfare. In fact, we tend to fall into one of three camps when it comes to this idea of spiritual warfare. Either number one, we we don't believe in good or evil spirits, right? We just kind of reject that notion as altogether just insane. It's just us, so we ignore it completely. 
Camp number two is like, well, no, I recognize that the Bible says that, but, but functionally, I don't do anything about it, right? It doesn't really change or affect my life in any way. I'm just kind of going through the motions, right? That's where I found myself in these weeks as I was preparing uh, for this sermon. Or camp number three, it's like everything is about spiritual warfare. Like you're reading all the Pareti books, right? It's just like you're up in it, right? Everything is about angels and demons, heaven and hell. And there's all these misconceptions about what that means and how that affects us as believers in Christ. Are, are believers possessed by demons? Are they not? Like, what do we need to do? And, and we just become infatuated and focused just in an unhealthy way on this war that's taking place all around us. And there tend, we tend to fall into, if you're in that camp, you tend to fall into this consensus that there's almost a duality of good and evil at work in the world and that God is telling us to get in the game and beat back the devil. Well, here's the thing. None of those are right. None of those are correct ways of thinking about and living in light of the spiritual warfare that is taking place all around us. And so Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20 is a really important passage for us to think about and consider if we are to rightly understand the nature of this war and how we, as the church, are to engage in this battle. And so for the next three sermons, we're going to focus on this issue of spiritual warfare. Today, I'm basically arguing for one main point. I have three points, but I have one main point, really, that we are at war. Right? There is a battle that is taking place. And then next week, Lord willing, we will look at the weaponry that we have for this battle. And the third week, we will look at the communications that we have for war. Now, our goal this morning is to think rightly about the battle itself, to try to clear up some of the misconceptions we might have about the nature of spiritual warfare. And so focusing just on verses 10 through 12 of Ephesians chapter 6, this text is going to clearly tell us that we are at war. So stand in the strength and armor of the Lord. We are at war. So stand in the strength and armor of the Lord. Let's look at the text together. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, to argue against these misconceptions that I just mentioned, I want to look at this text in reverse. All right? So I'm going to look at verse 12, then verse 11, and then verse 10. Now, I hate doing this. If anybody knows me, you know I hate doing this, but it's the best way to kind of approach this issue. Okay? So my first necessary point comes from verse 12, and point number one is that we are at war. You see there in verse 11, it says that we are to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against 
spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, right out front, I just wonder, how does this passage sit with you? Like, what does this stir up in your thoughts and in your heart? Like, how are you feeling about this passage when you come to it? I mean, does this seem to you to be sort of childish and archaic? Just a physical impossibility? Science in no way explains the notion of devil or evil spirits. That's just superstition, some nonsense that ignorant and paranoid people made up in some attempt to try to explain what is unexplainable. Is that where you find yourself this morning? Or are you kind of on the opposite end? This passage either terrifies you or it really, really excites you, right? God is telling me to wrestle against cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. I mean, does that lead you to sort of fixate and fascinate about what that means? Either to cower in fear and tremble at the thought of evil spirits or, or to this unhealthy zeal to just go out and kick the devil's can like some kind of ghostbuster. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, said that when it comes to devils and demons, there are two equally wrong, equally damaging errors. He said, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to have an unhealthy interest in them. And he means infatuation with them. So we need to be careful of both. Okay? Well, without question, the Bible, just like our passage before us, presents devil and demons as real personal spiritual beings who for thousands and thousands of years have stood in opposition to God's plan for his people. These are evil angels. So they were created by God. They long ago have sinned against God. They have willfully received his just and holy condemnation. And they have, from that time until now, continually seek to work evil in the world. Now, not all evil is from the devil. Okay, I just need to clear this up. My kids had that stage. I don't know about your kids, but my kids are age five. Age five is the, the, the devil stage, right? The devil made me do it. Everything is about the devil, the devil, the devil, the devil. And so you know, get in this long sort of diversion conversation about how it's like, you know, Gabe, the next time he's tempted into sin was just going to punch the devil in the face and all that. It was just, it was really cute, but it's wrong, right? Um, no, I mean, there. Evil exists outside of what the devil does, but the devil and demons are working evil in the world. And there are so many passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we could look at, from Genesis to Revelation, that talk about the work of the the devil and his fallen angels. And every one of them present him as real and personal, immaterial spirit. They do not have bodies, but they are real. They are present... Uh, They're present at specific times in specific places, and they interact and they engage with the world around them. Now, I do want us to think specifically about one area that the Bible talks about, and that's Jesus' own ministry. Let's think about, if this is not true, what does that mean for Jesus' ministry? Jesus himself was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? I mean, he went toe-to-toe with the cosmic power over this present darkness, right? The main primary spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. He stood against the schemes of the devil. And throughout his ministry, demons would see him and confess who he was. That this is indeed the son of God. They're like, oh, son of the most high God. Was you showing up early to torment me before the appointed time? 
right? So they recognized who it was, and virtually everywhere he went, he was casting out demons. He was showing his authority over them. Now, if this were not true, devil and demons don't exist, then what does that say about Jesus and his ministry? Well, either he's a liar or he's a lunatic, but he's certainly not Lord over all. Again, borrowing from C.S. Lewis there, right? He can't be who he said he was. He couldn't have done the things that he'd done if they don't exist. He's a liar. He's a lunatic. He's crazy out of his mind, but he's not Lord of all. And here's the thing. If you start to question any part of the Bible, you have to begin to question all of it. I mean, what point do you stop? At what point do you say this is right and this is wrong? And you have a right view about God, right? You ultimately, at that point, what is true and what is false and who decides that is based upon you. You are the ultimate authority over scripture at that point saying, no, that's not right. I'm dismissing that. This is okay. We'll keep this. But when you begin to deny aspects of God's word, then God cannot be God as he has revealed himself to be. His word cannot be his word as he has proclaimed it to be. Things like sin can't be sin, salvation can't be salvation, and on and on and on it goes. I mean, where does it stop? Why do we do that? Well, because we refuse to acknowledge it. We refuse to acknowledge it as God's word. And what you're left with at that point is a belief system of your own making. You're believing what you want to believe. You are the ultimate authority over what you see as religion, as right, as wrong, all of that. Now let me ask you this. Are you really so, so confident in your own ability to reason? So confident in your own intellect? so confident in your own intuition, so confident in your own senses that you will deny this outright. That mankind has somehow really plumbed the depth of all there is to be known that, or, or that we have really figured all of this out. Have we really become God in our own minds? Or are there other reasons for why we should think to ourselves that this whole spiritual warfare thing is impossible? Could it be that it's just, I I don't really want to acknowledge God. I don't really want to confess my need of him. I'm doing just fine on my own. I don't need any help from anyone else. And this is all a bunch of hooey. I just want to be clear though. Without question, the Bible says that the devil and demons are real and that we are to wrestle against them. And this fight that we're fighting is not on some distant spiritual battlefield, just way out there in the, in the ether, right? It's not that we can just sort of, in this fight, that we can just sort of say magic words or we can pray a simple prayer and then basically at the push of a button, some spiritual ballistic nuclear missile goes off and shoots and, and destroys these enemies on some distant realm. That's not what it's talking about. No, this text says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are to stand against the schemes of the devil. So what that means is this fight is near. This fight is right here and right now. It is continual. It is ongoing and it is a struggle. Like a wrestling match, we are to continually grapple hand-to-hand against Satan and his devices. And I also need to point out too, it's not as though we're in some tag team match. And Paul is saying here, be ready. 
Just be ready because somebody might tag you in, right? Some point that battle might come to you. So you got to be ready, okay? You're not in right now. You're on the sideline. You're cheering them on. But, you know, Aaron's in the fight right now. And pretty soon Aaron's going to tap on Keith. And so it goes. No, he's saying we all wrestle against these rulers and authorities. He's not dressing us as individuals, but the church. And he's saying we church wrestle against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces. We all wrestle. You are in this fight whether you recognize it or not. Now, this would not be a shock to the Ephesians, to the original audience. Right, there were no doubters in the church of Ephesus or even in Ephesus for that matter. Okay? I want you to keep your finger here in Ephesians 6 and flip to the left to Acts 19, verses 11 through 20. Acts 19, 11 through 20. Okay? This passage is dealing with Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Okay? So at this time, Paul has been in the city of Ephesus for two years ministering. And here's what it says, Acts 9, starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, question right up front. Who's doing the miracles, these extraordinary miracles? God is. That's important. Verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Okay, Now these guys were young, theologically confused, non-Christians who were power-hungry, ghostbuster wannabes. Okay? That's who these guys are. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So this battle with evil spirits was so real to the the people in Ephesus that these ghostbuster wannabes literally got their pants beat off by this demon, right? They fled naked and bloody. Verse 17 And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. All the residents of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. Okay, now, perhaps you're thinking, why? Why would this take place? Okay, look at the spiritual effect this spiritual warfare had on the people of Ephesus in the second half of verse 17. This is why God allows for spiritual warfare to occur says, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers, people are coming to Christ, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Friends, that's a lot of money. It doesn't matter how much, it's just a lot, Okay. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What increased, what prevailed mightily? The word of the Lord. This is ultimately 
the result of this spiritual warfare that they were eyewitnesses to. Okay? The people of Ephesus had this front row seat to witness this wrestling match between this evil spirit and the sons of Sceva. And it resulted in the fear of the Lord, in growth and holiness. People were coming to Christ and giving up their false worship practices. And the ultimate result, the pinnacle, was that the word of the Lord prevailed mightily. Well, friends, we have the same word. We have a truer witness than this front row seat to this spiritual battle that is taking place. We have the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord says, we are at war. So what are we going to do about it? Well, as that infamous book, The Art of War, rightly states, we must know our enemy. If we're going to stand against the schemes of the devil, we must know who he is and what his schemes are. And this text tells us a few things about him. It tells us that he is powerful. It tells us that he is evil. It tells us that he is cunning. He's called the devil here, and that name means slanderer or accuser. Well, he's both, a slanderer and an accuser. He uses schemes, and that word there is where we get our word method. So the devil has a methodology. The devil has a strategy to scheme and to plan and to plot, to slander the name and character of God and his people, His goal is to foster doubt and disbelief in the reality of his goodness and his wisdom and his power. The devil wants nothing more than to deceive us into thinking that God himself is a liar and that we are better off without him. His goal is to get us to attempt to live our lives without God as if this is my world and I am God. These are some of the ways that he slanders to try to get us to fall into his lies. And so he slanders until we act then upon his deception. We've fallen into his web of lies. And then what the slanderer then does is he turns around and he begins to accuse us. So now that he's got us in his web of deception, he turns around and he says, ha, you've sinned. You're guilty before God. There's no hope for you. You're now mine. And he heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps upon the guilt of our sin to deceive us into thinking that Christ's sacrifice is not big enough to pay the penalty for our sin, that there is no hope of freedom from our sin, that there's no hope for forgiveness for us. This is what he does. These are some of his schemes. Elsewhere, he is called Satan, the adversary. He is the one who stands opposed to God and God's will. Isaiah chapter 14 tells us that he was once a beautiful angel. Some people actually believe he was like the main worship leader in heaven at that time, but he decided that he wanted glory for himself. He wanted worship, and so he led this group of fallen angels to rebel against God, and they were cast out of heaven as a result of that. And so the moral of the story there is to watch out for usurping worship leaders who seek glory by trying to undermine the authority of their pastors. Just keep an eye on them. They're the devil. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> now, other passages of Scripture describe the devil as the father of lies. He's the father of hatred and of murder. He's the one who spins false doctrines and corrupts truth so as to keep us from worshiping the one true and living God. We're worshiping a version of God that is not God as he has revealed himself. 
He puts obstacles in the way of missionaries and those who would share the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have not heard. He sows doubt and discord and division and anger and bitterness among God's people. He tempts us towards self-sufficiency. He tempts us to sex and pride and power. He entices us to love and long for other things more than God. He blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He labors to keep them in darkness from seeing the light of Christ. In these and in many other ways, the devil schemes against God's will for his people. And so do not be deceived. He is cunning. He is going to attempt to deceive us. He schemes, and this schemer is powerful. Verse 12 says that his army is comprised of rulers and authorities. They're not just earthly governments or worldly authorities here. And we know this because back in chapter 1, verse 21, talked about these rulers and authorities, and they are rulers over ages, right? So these aren't just nations. These aren't just hostile nations who are persecuting Christians like you'd think about Saudi Arabia, No, it's just something greater at work there. Or in chapter 3, verse 10, it tells us that they exist in the heavenly places. So these are spiritual beings. Our fight, as our text said, is not with flesh and blood. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't hold sway over earthly rulers or governmental authorities in the here and now, but that they are not simply physical governing bodies that are opposed to Christ. Okay, our war is not a political one. We do not wrestle against governments. It is a spiritual battle against a cunning and powerful enemy who holds sway over them. Verse 12 goes on to say that we are to wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Rulers and authorities. These are world rulers over this present darkness. Now, what what does he mean by that? Well, I just want to remind you, I mean, the best way to understand this passage is to let Ephesians interpret it for you. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, really important for our time in thinking about what this present darkness is and how these spiritual authorities work, right? Because in chapter 2, verse 1, it says that before we were in Christ, before God saved us by his grace and made us alive by his grace, it says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course, that is the pattern of this world, following, get this, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, it's the devil, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, who were they? Among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So at one point, apart from the grace of God, we are all under the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Now in Ephesians, darkness represents ignorance, error, evil, and misery that comes not from the devil, but from our sinful hearts. This is key, okay? Ignorance, error, evil, and misery that comes from our sinful hearts. So according to chapter 4, verse 18, we were all once darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us due to our hardness of heart. 
These cosmic powers tempted and blinded us to keep us there. So much so that chapter 5 verses 8 through 11 says that at one time you were darkness. Not that you were in darkness, not that you were under darkness, not that you were being controlled by the darkness, but that you yourselves were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We all were once under the clutches of these spiritual powers, carrying out the desires of our own hearts by practicing all that is evil, wrong, and false. Friends, this is a real and present darkness. You've got to get this. I mean, we can go through life and we just kind of think to ourselves, yeah, it's not really that bad. Or maybe we see sin, but we don't call it darkness. We don't call it evil. We don't call it what it is. But no matter what anyone tells you, there is true evil. There is true wrong. There is true ignorance and falsehood and misery. And it's not out there in abstraction. It's not left to the Hitlers of the world, but not to us. It says that each one of us were darkness. We have got to admit that. We have got to confess that. We've got to realize that apart from the grace of God, apart from the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, that is who we were. It resides within each and every sinful heart. And this cosmic power is over this present darkness, not to control or manipulate, but to influence, to persuade, to deceive, to guide. And so do not be deceived. These world governments are in the world, so they are his world governments. This entertainment, it's his entertainment. Education system, it's his education system. He is the dominating influence in the world. And if we're going to try to succeed in those areas, then he is going to bombard us with every enticement to play by his rules. So do not be deceived. Friends, we've got to understand that sin is more than genetic neurological or hormonal abnormalities. Sin is real. Sin is spiritual. Sin comes from the heart, not just because of our DNA, our makeup. Evil is not just the product of dysfunctional human influences or bad parenting. No, evil is a perversion of what is good. And what our enemy does is he twists and amplifies evil and he lures us into actually doing what comes out of our hearts, of giving ourselves over to the most vile and debased desires of our hearts. And friends, we know that 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 doesn't just happen at the flip of a switch, right? I mean, you get this right, that the mass murderers don't just kind of get up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm just... I'm fed up. I'm done with it. I'm just go out and kill a bunch of people. Or better yet, I'm going to let all of those negative violence influences of video games and movies and my gun kill people, right? That's not what happens. Nor does the rapist kind of just wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I'm kind of bored. I think I'll go rape someone today. No one does that. No, what happens is that this starts out as a fairly innocent desire. Desire for acceptance, desire for respect, desire for gratification, a desire for power. But over time, slowly, 
It is twisted and perverted and amplified by the wiles of these cosmic powers over this present darkness until that person gives themselves over to committing sins that they previously thought were abhorrent and incomprehensible. Friends, if we're honest and we look at ourselves, maybe we haven't gone to that extreme, but we've all done the same thing. We've seen our sin compound and get stronger and stronger and stronger as we have given ourselves over to our sins. Now, not only are Satan and his cohorts cunning and powerful, they are wicked, okay? They are evil. Don't be deceived into thinking that we can toy around with them, that we can just kind of play their little games. They are spiritual forces of evil. That's meant to wake us up a little bit to the reality of the seriousness of this battle, right? Just because Jesus has won the war doesn't mean that there's not a fight here and that we have to get in the game, right? That we can just kind of, oh, it's not a big deal. I can toy around. Right? I can play with this sin in my life. No, their goal is to twist and distort and pervert and corrupt and ruin what God had created good. Now, I, I, at this point, I think I have to clear up another misconception. That the Bible does not present the devil and these evil spirits as an equal evil counterpart to God and his angels. Okay, there's not a duality that's going on here, like a yin versus a yang or the Jedi way versus the dark side of the force. Okay, that's not what's happening here. And we see that, right, just you know, like because of where they're located. I mean, these spiritual forces are not forces of evil that are otherworldly, that exist in some evil alternate dimension. It says that these are, these are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, let me ask you this, where else do we see these heavenly places according to Ephesians? About chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What about chapter 1, verses 20 and 21? That God raised Christ from the dead and seated him where? At his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, including Satan's, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things, and when he says all, he means all, all things under his feet, including these demonic forces. There's no duality when Christ has supreme authority. Or chapter 2, verse 6. Not only did God make us alive together with Christ by His grace, but He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're there too. Or chapter 3, verse 10. The gospel is proclaimed to reveal the plan of God. This, this plan once hidden, now revealed by the God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so, these spiritual forces of evil are in the same place that God is, same place that the victorious, resurrected Christ is, and the same place that the church is. We shouldn't understand this as some other world or heaven as being out there as some distant place far away from us because it's not true. This is the spiritual reality that is connected to and relating with our material world. Maybe, maybe it'll help to explain it this way. 
Think about us as human beings, as people. We are more than biological machines. We are more than simply material, physical beings. We have souls, kids, that can never die, right? Soul includes all of me that you know and love God. My heart, my will, my emotions, my longings, my desires, my plans, my affections. All of that is more than synapses across my brain or chemical imbalances or balances if there's such a thing or whatever that might be. I'm more than a biological machine. There's this immaterial part of me, right? It goes beyond what is physical. Well, the same thing with our world. There is a spiritual reality that is connected to and interacting at all times with the present world that we see. And this is the place of God's throne room. This is the place where Christ is reigning and ruling over all right now. This is the place where Christ's church is. And this is the same place where these spiritual forces of evil are. So what that means then is there's no duality of good versus evil. But that Christ reigns over them. He is supreme over them all. And though they stand in opposition to him, they have been defeated. And even now, they are being used through their rebellion to serve God's eternal plan for his glory and for our joy. That in the wisdom and the goodness and the power of God that he has purposed for this time, between Christ's ascension into heaven and his future return, that we, weak and sinful men and women, combined, brought together, united as a church, are to wrestle against these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. And he does so, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Guys, do you understand just how amazing this is? That the God of the universe, the God who created all there is, the God who could have done it any other way, snapped his fingers, we're perfected, all of that is done away with. This God and his wisdom and his mercy chose to display his unparalleled wisdom in saving wretched sinners like you and me and uniting us together as an intricate and beautiful tapestry of his lavish saving power to the dumbfounded awe of these evil spiritual forces do you get how significant this is it is through our unity as sinful people who want to divide through our maturity our growth in Christ through our love within the church that these cosmic powers learn that they have been defeated that their time is up that God has used what is weak to shame that is which is strong God's plan of salvation worked and what they thought would be their ultimate display of their victory in the cross of Jesus Christ was the ultimate display of their defeat. And as we, the church, are united together in Christ as fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, exalting Christ in all things, as we together wrestle the devil and his own spiritual forces of evil, we make that known to them. Therefore, we need not fear. But my friends, make no mistake. We are at war. 
As always, first and longest point. Next two much shorter. Though Christ has won a decisive victory, this battle is ongoing and continual. Therefore, second, we see from verse 11 that we have been called to take up arms. Verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, I want you to understand something clearly, that Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil was decisive. All right? It's done. It's not like he's still battling or wondering how this is going to work itself out. It's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. Yes, this victory is certain, but it is not yet complete. The application of Christ's victory in our present lives is not yet complete. All of God's people have not yet been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That hasn't yet happened. That is why we wrestle. That is why we fight. That is why we are at war. Why we are called to take up arms. Absolutely, this victory is certain and continual, but the application of it is only complete in heaven. You see, it's one thing for Jesus to defeat sin, death, and the devil, but it is another to completely vanquish and overturn all of the effects of sin, death, and the devil, and what that has had on creation. All right, it, it, let me try to explain it this way. In World War II, and World War II was won at D-Day. In Normandy, it was done. Okay? It was at that point that the, the lines of Germany were broken I mean, it was, they were goners at that point. We had a clear and direct march straight, straight towards Berlin at that point. It was over. It was done. They might as well just packed up shop and went home when we took that, playing, that, that field right there on that day. But yet, the war continued to rage on until V-Day, much later. There were battles. There were skirmishes. The, the enemy did not quit. And it's the same with this battle with Satan. He's losing. He's done. He's absolutely been defeated at the cross and resurrection of Christ, and yet he's still fighting this losing battle. And for that reason, we as God's children, as followers of Christ, have been called to take up arms. Now, the problem with that is that we live like it's V-Day and not D-Day, right? We, We live like it's over. It's done with. And, and that, you know, there's really no war, no struggling, no wrestling, And so often we come to Christ because we're looking for peace and rest. And those are byproducts of it, but it's peace and rest in the midst of the struggle, not in like doing away with the struggle. So that's challenging for us. I wish I could say a whole lot more about that, but I'm not going to. And so what we end up doing when we have this sort of leisurely, peaceful mindset is we come together We half-heartedly sing praises to Christ for defeating our enemies, and then we go back home and we watch a movie and eat a bag of chips. And virtually our week is filled with thoughts about everything other than Christ and our need to take up arms with him. Am I right? We fail to realize that, that we still have a part to play in this fight, that we ourselves and others around us are the actual battlefield, that this war is being waged for our souls and we have been called to get into the fight. We can't ignore that fact that we are at war, that Satan has set his scheme against us. Or we can't plan or pretend 
uh, that we can make feudal peace treaties with Satan, the way that England and France and Italy made the eunuch pact with Germany in 1938, that simply handed Czechoslovakia over to Hitler's ploy for world domination without firing a single shot. Nor can we be like Switzerland that basically just stood in the midst of all of that and did absolutely nothing, just kind of closing their eyes and plugging their ears and saying, all right, I won't look at you if you don't look at me. This is not really happening. It is. No, God clearly calls us here to put on the whole armor of God and to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we'll talk more about this armor next week, Lord willing. But for now, let me just say three quick things about this. First of all, God has given us all that we need, a complete set of armor to stand against Satan's devices. He's given us everything we need. It is complete, but we need to put on the whole armor of God. You don't just put on part of the armor. You put on the whole thing, right? If I just kind of go in like, you know what? This battle's not really that bad. Let's take my sword. I just put on my helmet, get in the war. And you're like, oh, wait, time out. I forgot my shield. No, that's not how it works. You're to take up the whole thing. Second, the reason why he has given us this armor is not so that we can polish it or display it in our hallways, but to put it on so that we might stand against the schemes of the devil. There is work to be done. We have to take a stand. We've been called to arms. Friends, what happens to a fortress if no one takes their position along the wall? Eventually, the fortress falls, does it not? The fortress is the church, and we have been called to take our place at the wall. And friends, if you do not take a stand, you will fall to the schemes of the devil. It's guaranteed. And if you fail to hold your position, if you fall, just like that, when you think about a wall of a fortress, You're not the only one going down. Other people will fall with you. Paul is not speaking to a bunch of autonomous Christians here saying, okay, you take your position, you take your position, you take your position, right? It's volunteer only, only if you want to. If you're a conscientious objector, just go ahead and sit to the side. No, that's not the way it is. He's saying we're all taking our stand here. He's speaking to the church. He's calling them. Just remember what Ephesians has said. He's called them to unity in Christ. He's called them to fight the fight of faith. He's called them to help one another to grow into maturity in Christ and to stand against the schemes of Satan. And if we fail to stand, we will fall and others will fall with us. Friends, this taking a stand is not just about you. Did you get that? It's not just about you. It's not that I just need to take a stand in such a way as to not personally fall myself. I just need to do enough to get by. No, I'm I'm to take a stand in such a way as to help others not fall to the schemes of the devil. That's a completely different matter. It's not just about me and doing enough to get by, but to actually build up my weaker brothers and sisters in Christ and those who do not yet know him toward maturity in Christ. We have been called not to just take a stand for our own generation either and just kind of assume like, okay, we're all right. This generation is okay, but we're to do it in such a way that future generations can stand against the schemes of the devil. See, this wall goes on from the beginning of the church until Christ's return. 
right? It is continuing. It goes throughout time. And we have one small part of that. We are in one position. It's not just about me and what I do and, and do I do just enough to get by, but I'm to take a stand in such a way as to help others that for generations after me to take a stand against the devil. So we cannot be lazy or passive or apathetic or say to ourselves, you know what? This is good enough. It's okay. We're doing all right. We are to take a stand together with the saints of old and of those future generations yet to come along this wall to wrestle against the schemes of the devil and his army. We all have a part to play. We've all been called to take our stand, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And to do that, we must put on the armor of God. And we've seen that word put on before. Chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Now that we have learned Christ, we are to put off that old self. It belongs to the former manner of life. It is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, this hits so close to home. This hits closer even than how I'm to love my wife. Everybody deals with this. This, is, this involves us all. And if you're trying to live and look like the world, if you're hoping that you could just add Jesus a little bit to my life, right, so that I can kind of have all of the blessings of Jesus but still live and look just like I did before, just you're deceiving yourself. You've already fallen prey to the schemes of the devil. Friends, to put on the whole armor of God is to put on Christ. And this is active. We don't fall into Christ. Just kind of, oh, look at that. I'm now in Jesus. We don't fall into renewed minds. We don't fall into Christ-likeness or truth or righteousness or holiness. We don't fall into taking a stand against the schemes of the devil as much as we would like for that to be true. No, we fall into sin. We fall into the schemes of the devil. We fall into darkness. We fall into our old selves, our former manner of life. We fall to corrupt and deceitful desires. And so to put on and stand our active verbs, wrestling requires effort. We cannot simply stand by. We cannot claim to be conscientious objectors to this war. We cannot remain lazy or passive or ignorant or apathetic towards this battle. We've all been called to take up arms and to take our stand on that wall. Now, fortunately for us, we don't have to do this in our own strength because verse 10 reminds us of our third point that the strength for the victory belongs to the Lord. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And when Paul says finally, he's not just kind of adding this extra little bit, like basically in his letter to the Ephesians saying, you know, really, I'm done. I've pretty much covered everything. I mean, I got right in your homes, but let me just kind of add this as a little bit of an aside, just to make sure that I've covered everything sufficiently. Like it's sort of an addendum to what Paul is really getting at. No, when he says finally, this is the climax. Everything has been building up to this point right here in verse 10. Right? This is the pinnacle. This is the ultimate. Because let's face it, who is seeking to thwart God's eternal plan to unite all things in Christ? Who is the spirit that is still at work in the sons of disobedience? 
Who is it that's seeking to divide the church? Who wants us to lie and harbor anger and bitterness against each other? Who is making it harder for wives to submit to their own husbands and husbands to love their wives the way that Christ loved the church? Satan is. And so this is really the climax of the book of Ephesians. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Our focus should not ultimately be on Satan and his devices. We don't need to become consumed by this battle that we're in and just kind of wondering if Satan, you know, kind of taking the ground and what do I need to do here to sort of fight him back, right? That's not the point. No, we need to, we need to know what they are and discern how he is at work, but we don't need to be infatuated with satanic activity. We need to focus on Christ to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might because then we're ready if it comes. We're ready when it comes. We're ready to fight each and every day. Now, did you notice that in verse 11, it said, stand against the schemes of the devil. I love this, right? It didn't say attack. It didn't say charge. It, it, it said stand. Right? This is not calling us to attempt to advance by our own strength, but to stand in the strength of the Lord. This is not some call to name it and claim it, right? That we just need to kind of go on the prayer walk and just kind of claim this building in the name of our Lord Jesus, casting out all of the demons that are there. This is not calling us to just go out and try to just headhunt a bunch of demons and cast them out in the name of the Lord. That's not what it's calling us to. It's calling us to take a stand and to take a stand in the strength of the Lord. It says, be strong. Right? A more helpful interpretation here is actually be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I mean, this is passive. He's saying, just let the Lord strengthen you. Right? Be there in the strength of his might. We don't build or advance the Lord's kingdom. The Lord does that. We have been called to take a stand and to defend what he has claimed by his own power and his own strength and his own might that he gives to us. It's not about us and our abilities of what we do for Jesus. It's about what he does in us and for us. I just want to remind us what Paul has already told us in Ephesians about how the Lord strengthens us for the task that we've been given in this war. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 23, Paul prays, that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. God prays that God would enlighten our hearts so that we might know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, including Satan's, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What do you do there? Who's this about? And in chapter 3, after he told us of how God's eternal plan was to redeem and to unite and transform and to perfect the church as this trophy 
of his glory and his wisdom and his goodness and his grace to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Paul again prays for us in verses 14 through 21. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What do we do there? What's our role? What's our position? Friends, Christ alone has defeated his enemies. Christ alone has conquered sin and death. Christ alone is building his kingdom. And Christ alone is giving us the strength not to advance, but to stand. He will not give his glory to another. And though we are in the midst of a war, this fight and the strength for this fight are his We need not fear or obsess over our enemy. We don't need to cower and tremble before him, but we must acknowledge that the battle is real and to take our stand in the strength and armor of the Lord. Friends, let's pray together. Father God, I I pray that we would not be deceived. Pray that we would not fall into the pattern of this world that wants to reject you and the idea of any sort of spiritual reality around us. I pray that we would not fall into following the prince of the power of the air, to live in in fear and trembling of him, but that our focus would be on Christ, that we would take our stand alongside our brothers and sisters from generations long ago and generations still yet to come to proclaim the truth and beauty of Christ, to be strengthened by him to do his will, to give glory to no other name, not in our own strength and our own ability, but in the strength that you provide. Lord, I pray that we would not be deceived, that we would not um, be confused any longer about what we are called to do in the midst of this war and who our enemy is that we would stand together and fight in your strength and in your might. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.